This is the Tech People Markets Podcast, hosted by Sean Price, where we sit down with industry leaders and get their insight on all the current trends and topics in their industry. On this week's episode of the TPM Podcast, James Stafford, COO of EMA Training in Derby, talks to us about his background, where he came from, how he got to where he is today, and how it is working with apprentices over the years, seeing them developing their own careers from being students to taking high positions in other companies later on down the line. The pride that brings, the challenges in helping young individuals grow, and ultimately the great successes that come with working hard and delivering fantastic results. This is James Stafford. There he is. So where are you today? I'm in the hub. In the I'm in the hub. Um, which is why I've got... Hub, right? Sorry? You renamed to the hub now, is that what's... Yeah, what that's it? it. Yeah. Yeah, we uh, we didn't want uh, to be using a name like the Academy. Um, yeah, we, definitely the definitely the training hub. Yeah. So I How things for you? Yeah, things are good here. It's, it's busy, which is good. It's, you know... COVID is COVID and it's causing all the headaches that it's going to cause and mm. all the frustrations. And I think anybody that says it's it's not a, a difficult time is lying to themselves. Uh, as far as business is concerned, it's generally been pretty good to us for most of it. I'd say uh, the last the last three months of it have been pretty tough. But, you know, for this to have gone on for a year and only to have hit us in the last three months and considering ourselves to be fairly lucky. Mm. So that's some. Yeah, I, th- I think so. You, you went through some serious growth, didn't you, at the start of, um, well, throughout 2020, really. Um, yeah, and, and we, we kind of did the same thing over the last 12 months or so. We've grown from, what, 10 people to, to 20 full-time employees now. Nice. Um, so we've kind, of, we've kind of made the best of it. And I think we're, we're probably quite fortunate to the industries that we're working in, kind of specialising in IT and digital and tech, probably a little bit. A little bit like yourself, I think the reliance upon technology has uh, has continued to continue to grow, which has been quite positive for our businesses. Well, I, I think that the whole digital transformation thing, which let's be honest, was a bit of a buzzword for the last few years, didn't really mean a great deal. Uh, it was just a way for big companies to charge exorbitant fees for for who knows what kind of consulting. But you know, I think what's happened has sped up that whole digital transformation enormously now. And you know, we're at, we're at the point now where working from home is now it's the norm almost. Mm. Despite a lot of people not liking it, there are those that do. Um, yeah. You know, we've we we put ourselves in a position now where it's if you want to work from home permanently, you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is on the basis is that it is something that works for you. Like it's productive for you. Yeah. If, you if you're working from home and you're struggling and performance dips, then, you know, the office is open, come on in. But ultimately for those who can, you know, go ahead and do it. Right. Have that flexibility. Yeah. Too right. Too right. I think for me personally, um, I, I was keen to get back into the office as soon as possible. Most were, I think. Mm. I, I like to have that separation away from my home life and my work life, and and I create that environment in in my office to to yet yeah, to, to be totally set apart, totally different. And then at least when I get home of an evening, I can make sure that the laptop's not coming out, and you know I'm present there with my family. All right, well let's let's start there then. I mean, 
are you actually present with the family? Do you have the the mythical work-life balance correct then? Is that what you're trying to tell me? I would say so. I would say so. Um, I work I work quite long hours, but you know, I'm still I drop my daughter off at nursery every morning and I'm back home for, for bedtime each night to, to be able to bath the kids and and have dinner with the wife and and sit down for a couple of hours and, and watch Netflix. So yeah, I would I would say I've got that balance. On a weekend, yeah, of course, I dip into work. I'm checking my emails. I'll maybe spend a couple of hours on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning doing some work. But yeah, I think as a business, part of our culture is really embracing work-life balance and making sure that everybody has that. We um, we have our team well-being meetings on a on a Friday, and mm-hmm. as part of that, if anybody comes out and says, "Well, last night I was up until two o'clock in the morning um, working on my CPD or preparing some learning resources for delivery." They get told off and you know it's we make it very clear to them that look you really need to be having that downtime you need to be spending your time with your family um and that's something that we push and, and as leaders we have to be leading by example with that as well i think it's you can't preach about work-life balance if you're not setting those standards yourself and i think that's probably something i learned quite recently too it is because, and I just talked about this on an interview the other day that went out, which is, you know, I, I try and promote work-life balance in the company, or as I, I always refer to it as integration, right? That's how you always hear it from me, because, you know, my son does come in the office and, and what have you, and the way my life is structured, I will be answering emails at two o'clock in the morning, but that's because we also have offices overseas, customers overseas, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. But I do try and limit the amount of emails that most people will get from me internally at two o'clock in the morning, unless yeah. it's absolutely necessary. So it's important to try and find that balance. So it's really interesting because just before we hopped on this, I decided to go back through my emails and look when we first started talking. Yeah. And it was actually seven years ago this week. Was it really? Yeah. I can, I can imagine it must have been because, yeah, you you're one of the one of the first employers that that I dealt with in in this sector and actually you were particularly patient <laughs> with us and really supportive of the scheme and I think in the, in the business that you were running at the time you know you you really embraced the apprenticeship scheme and and gave some of the some of those young people you know amazing support so I mean you have a fancy title now where you're at EMA training mm. uh, but seven years ago what were you recruitment exec or what was yes. the title yeah, so recruitment executive employer engagement. So essentially going out and talking to local businesses and talking to them about the benefits of taking on an apprentice and then being that sort of consultant throughout the process and advising them on the type of candidates that we've got in, in the talent pool. And, it, and we, we spoke about a match and fill process. So it's really about understanding the, the clients that you're working with and understanding which kind of candidate is going to be a good fit and I think over the years you you really hone your skills in terms of understanding businesses right you know when I, when I first came into this industry seven years ago as you say my, my awareness of organizations and, and what their requirements are were pretty non-existent and I think it was a real learning curve throughout my time in the sector to to start understanding what businesses need and what type of, of person is going to fit in that organization. So what did you study at university? Like, how did you grow up? Where do you come from? Take me right back because getting to be recruitment exec and then taking the large leap that you have done over the years to where you are now, Mm. where did you start? 
Yeah, so so I, I went to one of these uh, the type of school where when you when you've got good A levels, you have a UCAS form placed in front of you, and I got decent GCSEs, I got decent A levels. I think I got a BCC at A level, which was quite reasonable. Um, and naturally, I had a had the UCAS form shoved in front of me and and ready to fill out. Sent off that UCAS form, and and I ended up going to the University of Sheffield. Mm. Uh, and I studied accountancy and finance. I actually dropped out of that program in year two. Um, I had a great time at university. It was, you know, it was, it was really good. You got to meet a lot of people, and I think for life experience, it was, it, it was great, and it gave you that independence. But I think as a young person, I was probably I was quite immature, and actually being going off to do self study and being totally reliant upon yourself to motivate yourself to do the to do the studying I found quite difficult I didn't know what I wanted to do and I looked at you know what what does my dad do right he's, he's in finance I think you know a lot of young people can probably um it probably resonates with quite a, quite a lot of young people and if they don't know what they want to do they kind of follow what their their parents do my, my mm-hmm. dad was in finance at Rolls-Royce and I'd got a good maths GCSE I'd got a good business A level so I went for accountancy and finance management. It seemed quite a, quite a logical step. Looking back at it now, you know, doing finance and accounts couldn't be further from what I enjoy doing. You know, I enjoy talking to people. And I'm not saying an accountant doesn't talk to people. But yeah, I do prefer that sort of face-to-face interaction. I like sales, I like consultancy, that kind of thing. So anyway, I went and, went and studied found it quite difficult to motivate myself to study for these exams and go to lectures and that kind of thing. And yeah, ended up leaving after a couple of years. After that, I worked as a resourcer for a recruitment business. So that was, I guess that was probably my first taste of, of working in recruitment. So why because, recruitment then? You know, why, why was that what pulled you? Was it the, the flashy cars and the big, big salaries? I'd not really considered it as a potential as a potential career. I mean, I'm going. I'm trying to go back quite a long way now. I think maybe when I finished uni, I, I got a part time job in a bar in in Derby, and I was working working behind the bar. And I think I probably increased my hours a little bit. And then I was talking to to one of the clients who used to used to come in on a on a daily basis, and he happened to run a recruitment business. He liked the way that I engaged with customers. And I think he must have seen something in me to think, right, I feel as though you would be, you'd be good in, in the world of recruitment. And one day he, you know, he, he asked me whether, whether I'd be interested in going to, going to join him. And I did. And I, did, I, I quite enjoyed it. I didn't love it. I think, yeah, maybe, maybe the, that business wasn't particularly right for me. I don't think the business performed particularly well. And I was, I was made redundant after, what, six months or so. At that point, I signed on to the, the job center wow. and the job center came up with a role working for a letting agency and it was a working in repairs so kind of supporting people that were in rented accommodation who maybe needed a boiler replacing or something like that and they would phone up the repairs line and that I would be that person to speak to them and then coordinate a, a plumber or a gas engineer to, to go out to their property it was targeted so there was sales there was customer services involved in that as well worked there for a year uh, and then I the, the guy who owned that business also owned a an insurance company and I wanted the opportunity I wanted the opportunity to work for his insurance brokers 
And he told me that there wasn't an opportunity there. Um, and I said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll work for two weeks for free in your insurance brokers. Um, you know, I feel as I can, I can make more money there. I can do more sales. And he said, yeah, all right, fair play, do it. So I did that, worked for two weeks for free. And then he said, right, okay, you can, we'll, we'll set you on. And ended up being there for about three and a half years. And then it was actually my wife who was approached by somebody at a large apprenticeship training provider. And she was working at the, the local college at the time. She wasn't my wife at the time. She was a, she was a girlfriend. And she said it wasn't, it wasn't the opportunity for her, but my partner might be interested. Um, so she spoke to me about the, the role and, and I said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go for that. And uh, I put my hat in the ring and I was offered the role. And that was my first job in, in apprenticeship training. It's interesting that you were talking about actually, you know, going into that insurance brokerage and doing two weeks for free. Mm. There's a lot to be said for working for free to prove your worth sometimes or to prove that you are willing to get your hands dirty and roll your sleeves up. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people now that, that wouldn't dream of doing an hour's free work. I totally agree. I totally agree. That was, that was a piece of advice given to me by my dad. Um, when I said that I'd wanted, I wanted to work in that part of the business. And he just said, look, just the, the only way to, to prove to somebody how much you want something is to, to go and show them. Mm. And I think just make, I mean, he paid me for those two weeks in the end anyway, but just making that offer just kind of shows what, what you're about as a person and shows work ethic. When I speak to apprentices now and they really want to work in a business, I say, look, never be afraid to say to an employer, um, you know, I'm, I'm prepared to work for a couple of weeks for free to show you, show you what I'm made of. And I, I quite often share the story about, you know, how it got me into, into sales. I think it's important. And I know that you, you know, when we've worked with you in the past, um, you know, to recruit apprentices, you, you've actually offered that up as a suggestion to them to go, look, Hey, you know, just do a little bit of work for free, you know, not two weeks, but do do a portfolio piece or work on something that's relevant to the business free of charge and show them what you're capable of. Because, you know, right now and, and pandemic aside uh, and all the joblessness and, and everything going on right now, it's hard to find a good job, even in a good economy, because there are so many good candidates generally out there. And I think a lot of businesses um, and we're not guilty of this, thankfully, but a lot of businesses just go, right, you've got a degree, that's good, you're on the pile. Mm. Whereas we kind of look at it from the viewpoint of look at the person, look at their their willingness to learn the skills that they have and the skills that you believe that they can have with some training. And for me, I mean, you dropped out of university, I went to university, but even back then, apprenticeships weren't what they are today. Mm. Um, they, weren't, think- they weren't, they weren't. I think given the chance of having good apprenticeship back then, I would have gone that route, certainly. Mm. It's interesting. One of the things that we've been doing recently, and you'll know this because of some of the, uh, some of the candidates that you've hired off us over, over the last 12 months, but when we have applications coming in, you know, we get hundreds and hundreds of applications for our apprenticeship programmes. And one of the things that we've introduced since the pandemic, which will certainly be here to stay, is getting the apprentices to create their own video CVs. Mm-hmm. You take for digital marketing, for example, we encourage them to be as creative as possible, you know, use video editing software um, and, you know, and make, making sure they're doing their own cuts, their own edits, the, the overlay music, the overlay text, all those kind of things. And 
it's almost like creating a bit of a portfolio prior to being sent out to, to that client. And actually, what we've, what we've found is that placement rates have gone through the roof because the, I guess one, one of the most important things for us is if they've gone off and they've spent the time to create their own video, it already shows a degree of commitment towards the job role. Mm-hmm. You might get 100 people apply for a, for a digital marketing apprenticeship position, but some of them might be being persuaded by their parents to apply for stuff that they're not really that bothered about. And actually those people are the ones that will not create the video. And nobody comes into our talent pool until they've created that video and shown us that, that degree of commitment. We also now set little social media projects um, and get them to, to create a little portfolio project around, around social media. So again, that just it further gives um, credibility to their application and just shows that they are prepared to put themselves out there and, and to give something before, before taking something. And that's really the interesting thing about what's going on with social media today is everybody is their own little creative agency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I spoke to somebody the other day and said, oh, you know, I'm not very good at video editing. I've never done it before. However, you're on TikTok all day long and Instagram and Snapchat and all these things. And you actually are, you are putting mini videos together on almost a daily basis, right? So it's just taking those skills and adapting them slightly. But I mean, when you started this journey seven years ago in in the previous uh, company, you know, I mean, none of this was around back then. I mean, half of those platforms I just mentioned weren't even weren't even created back then so i mean clearly your sector's changed considerably over the last few years yeah it's it's certainly developed um i think at the time you know seven years ago we were only able to ever send cvs Mm -hmm. and and actually if you think about it as a from an employer's perspective if you receive three cvs and then you book out half a day to interview these three candidates and none of them are right for your business from a cultural perspective, from a personality perspective, then the next time I send you three CVs, you're going to be a hell of a lot less likely to book out half a day of your busy schedule to, to see these people. Um, and, and naturally for us as a training provider, our placement rates are going to suffer off the, mm. off the back of that. If we are sending candidate CVs and videos over to you, you get that sort of one to two minute snapshot of what that candidate's like. And, what I found with employers a lot of the time is that from watching those videos, there can be 50% there knowing that they want to hire that individual because they've got the video, they've seen what they're about, they have seen the creativity, they've got that, they've got the CV to supplement that video as well. They're 50% there. So really, when they end up interviewing the apprentice, um, it, it tends to be a rubber stamp exercise. And, you know, I think that's, that's kind of how this, the sector's changed. I think also in terms of how the sector's developed is the, the way that apprenticeships work these days. It used to be on apprenticeship frameworks, mm-hmm. which weren't particularly job role specific. And I remember, you know, you probably had some frustrations back in the day when you were running a creative agency and you wanted a software developer. And we, and the, and the only appropriate program was a, an IT um, level three framework. And yeah. actually a lot of that program was not really relevant to you. It was, there was some hardware on there, there was some security, there was some networking. And, and really, yes, you know, they're, they're great fundamentals to have as, as, a, as an apprentice. But in terms of software development, a lot of that training wasn't particularly relevant to your organisation. I think over the years, we've, we've seen more and more apprenticeship standards being launched onto the market. 
Um, yeah, and and they are very much targeted to the job role. You know, the digital marketeers are, yeah, the, each apprenticeship standard has a trailblazer group, which is, uh, which has employers on there. And the content of those programs are constantly being reviewed to make sure it's fit for purpose for the employers. And they have representatives from SMEs and large corporates to make sure that what training providers are delivering are relevant and, and, and are the skills that are required by the sector. So there's been a lot of change in the sector. I was going to say, because like you just mentioned there, before there wasn't quite all the frameworks needed for a lot of these roles out there, like software developers, which is my background, ultimately, you know, we, we learn best by doing. We don't necessarily learn best in a, in a university environment, right? And trying to put a software developer in an IT support or IT hardware apprenticeship really wouldn't, wouldn't benefit that person in particular. So they were almost cutting out a lot of the quality candidates or pushing them down a route that they probably didn't necessarily want or know about going down. Um, and I think there was possibly some, possibly some squeezing candidates into certain frameworks that maybe wasn't right for them at the time. But yeah, that was just as a result. That was as a result of what the industry was like at the time. Mm-hmm. Now you're far, you're far more flexible, and you've got a lot more options. You know, how do you? How is the industry managing to maintain that level of standards, quality, compliance, or is it just all a free for all? Now you've got so many frameworks you can jump all over. So your question is how is how is the industry managing the quality of apprenticeship programs? And candidates that come through or how are we managing that process as a business well how are you doing it because you've got to be doing something different to the rest because and you know i obviously had a phone call with ofsted i had a phone call with ofsted when it was to talk about how you guys are delivering and, and what have you and what I explained to them is how you deliver and how that comes across from an employer standpoint. Mm-hmm. And the mutual conversation was nobody else is doing half of these things. So you guys are going above and beyond and doing a lot of really interesting things. How do you stop it becoming a, not a corrupt uh, environment, but how do you stop it just being throwing, you know, against the wall ultimately and, yeah. and having low standards in the industry now? Yeah. I mean, obviously Ofsted are there to, to maintain standards of apprenticeship training providers. You also have something called the Register of Approved Training Providers as well. Mm-hmm. You have to apply to, to be on that list. And obviously, you know, the, the government body, which is the SFA, they will monitor what type of training providers are, are on that list. And, you know, there's a, there's a number of different criteria that, that are included within that, such as Ofsted grades and financial position and, and those types of things, uh, delivery capabilities. Um, so yeah, we've we've got ourselves on the on the register of approved training providers. We have Ofsted coming in. We've had that recent inspection, and and Ofsted are actually you know whilst it can be quite scary having Ofsted in, essentially they 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 are if you work with them correctly, they act as a support function to your business, and they they want high quality provision. And actually, if they feel as though there's maybe areas that you can work on and improve on, then they'll give you advice and guidance around that. I think one of the things that Ofsted came back to us and, and, and fed back on, as they said, in terms of our, the delivery of our apprenticeship programs, they said, you know, they'd, they'd never seen um, such a high density of high quality delivery personnel in the business. So I think in terms of maintaining quality, one of the key things for us is effective recruitment. And it's a, and it's a big challenge in the sector because you, you tend to find that you get um, there's, there's people that kind of hop around from training provider to training provider. But 
one of the things that we set out with, you know, kind of 12 to 15 months ago, is that we wanted to bring in the best people in the sector. We we pitch our proposition as being a really high quality proposition from a training, mentoring, consultancy perspective. And we want to make sure that we've we've got the best people there. Um, you know, we, in terms of salaries that we pay, we, we pay the highest salaries, but it's not just a salary thing. It's not just a, a money thing about why people might join this business. A lot of it is about the culture. We, we run a very flat structure. So um, apprentices get a lot of exposure to senior management in the business. Um, there's, you know, we, we lead by example. Uh, so Tracy is our chief exec and she still delivers some of the accountancy qualifications. She delivers some commercial training on a, on a uh, Wednesday night. I think she does it. And sometimes if we've got an accountancy trainer on annual leave, she'll jump in and she'll support with some of the, uh, some of the delivery, delivery on that as well. From my side of things, you know, I'm still very much involved in the, in the sales recruitment and engagement process. Uh, as as well as having you know, more senior level responsibilities as well. So the culture of our business is really important. We define some really clear values, which were about you know, collaborate, innovate, integrity, service, impact, and respect. And we make sure that you know those values aren't just empty values. Um, they are ones that we celebrate internally. One of the things that we did recently, uh, which kind of really stands as apart from other providers. We, we launched a scheme called, um, well, we launched a platform called eAmazing, and it's about celebrating all of our fantastic apprentices and being able to give something back to those learners who work so hard uh, on program with us and also to our staff that, that do such a fantastic job. And essentially, this platform is in partnership with a, a company called Perkbox. And on that platform, you can, you can send nominations. And when we talk about the values of our business, we, and, and if you're nominating somebody, you're recognizing somebody for achieving an exam or for some hard work or for collaborating with a colleague or having some impact on somebody's career. When we recognize them, you can attach that to one of our company values. So it means that we're constantly embedding our company values in in everything that we do and it's a constant reminder it's not just something to go on our website that looks pretty um, and I think in terms of you know just coming back to your original point how do we how do we maintain that quality I think that's that's it really it's about bringing the right people in it's about having the right quality checks internally from our IQAs it's about working with external bodies like Ofsted to ensure that our provisions at, at the best it possibly can be. And, and that's, that's shown through our recent inspection. Because, you know, like any industry, and I feel that it is quite prevalent in, in this space, there are a lot of, I don't, don't want to call them cowboy companies, but there are a lot that will cut corners, mm-hmm. do things to ultimately benefit the bottom line ahead of benefiting uh, the learner, Right. And what you guys have done is invested heavily in making sure that the learner sees the benefit above and beyond. And it's really interesting to use Perkbox. So we have Perkbox internally here. So right. every member of staff has the Perkbox Platinum or whatever whatever it's called. Sapphire. Yeah, whatever the top level yeah. is. So they get all yeah. their free cinema tickets and coffees and everything else, right? Yeah. And, and it is because it's, it's gamification, right? It, it's giving that person a sense of achievement. And I know that one of our apprentices recently passed an exam, uh, Katie passed an exam and, you know, she got a little award thing on Perkbox and immediately sent that through to me as an image, as a, as a screenshot. You know, it's a, it's a sense of pride. Um, 
And I just don't think printing out a certificate anymore would give the same as it would have done 10, 20 years ago. You know, what I'm certainly curious about is you mentioned there that you still get intimately involved and Tracy gets intimately involved in, in running courses. You know, you've grown from 10 to 20 in the last few months. Does that scale as you go 20 to 30 to 40 to 50? You know, how much of that are you going to have to let go? And are you comfortable in letting that go? Yeah, so, I mean, sales is sales and consultancy, I, I think, is, is my passion. I love engaging with employers. I love working with them. I love finding out what their needs are. Um, so trying to let that go, I would find very difficult. And I think I will always have some sort of involvement in the, in the, in the sales and engagement side of this business, um, you know, even as we grow. And even as much as, you know, as we grow, when we bring new consultants in and salespeople in, we want them to almost join in from the bottom and, and, uh, and acknowledge the culture and, and our approach to things and our consultative nature. And we'll never create a culture where salespeople are fitting square pegs in round holes. It will all, always be listening to the client and understanding what the needs are and then recommending suitable solutions off the back of that. So whether it will be me account managing and, and, and doing outbound sales, possibly not as we scale, but I'll certainly be involved in the, in the training and mentoring process of, of salespeople coming in the business. So is there a, I'm assuming there's either commission, referral, bonus structure around placing apprentices in employers. That still, that still exists, I assume? There isn't currently, no. Okay. Um, it, I mean, currently it's myself and, and our sales director, Matt, who, uh, who are essentially our, our sales function. So we, you know, we we have a basic salary, and uh, and you know that that is that's our salary. We, so we so don't when have it comes to in place. so when it comes to growing that sales team for placements, uh, I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. But how do you prevent uh, it becoming the wolf of Wall Street, where people are ultimately placing people just to earn those commissions, and the care for the individual, the care for the apprentice, the care for the employer as well, yeah. goes out the window. How do you prevent that? Because we, we do see a lot of firms who are just driven by those those figures. Yeah, I think importantly in sales management, you can either manage everything on just purely based on figures brought into the business, or you can sort of broaden the KPIs, can't you? And I think one of the things that we'll be looking at from a KPI perspective when we bring salespeople into the business, well, the, the first thing is, yes, I definitely would be keen to put a commission scheme in place. I think salespeople do tend to be driven by a, a competitive commission scheme, a competitive bonus scheme. But I think it can be easy in, in, in sales to, to be too driven by that. Um, so I think there'll, there'll be other factors as well. There'll be things like your withdrawal rates. And if your withdrawal rates are higher than 15%, perhaps, then you wouldn't necessarily, then you'd, you'd be penalized from a commission perspective. I think what you've got to prevent I think, yeah. are, the, are, those, are those companies where all they care about is that. And you've got it on the employer side as well, right? So you have the mm. employers that look at apprentices, pay them the bare minimum apprenticeship wage. You know, and you know, you know from the years that we work together, we never bring an apprentice in on the minimum wage. We always give them a, a healthy start, and we always aim to put them at a very competitive graduate salary before they finish their apprenticeship. Yeah. That's always our goal. You know, you, you've got those employers that do put the apprentices in the corner and go, "Here's a stack of paperwork. You're the cheap admin person," and it's balancing keeping them away from bad companies 
and also keeping them away from bad actors in sales, I suppose, that just want to keep doing those placement bonuses over and over. I think that's it. And one of the things that we do as well that we actively encourage is our our trainers and, and well, particularly our mentors who will be the ones that are dealing with our employers on a day-to-day basis. And they will be the ones that will get exposure to seeing how supportive a particular organization is. So we actively encourage those guys to feed back to the sales team. And actually, if there's a business there that's maybe not being supportive of the apprentice or they're, you know, they are giving the apprentice duties that aren't in line with the apprenticeship program. And it's very much sort of tea making duties and, and uh, you know, and, and it not really being fit for purpose. Then at that point, that would then flag it up. And, you know, performance reviews would be based around the quality of employers that are being brought on as well. So that's that's really important for us. Have you um, have you had to turn away business from a client or a company? That you've just gone. This just you're just not the right fit for the apprenticeship model. Yeah, we have we have some organisations where we don't. It, it can be really very difficult to get in touch with them, and they're just so busy that we just get the feel that they are not going to have the time to invest in an apprentice from a support and nurture and. Um, and guidance perspective yeah we've, we've rejected those type of organizations there's also been companies where there's maybe been one or two people in the company and or maybe they lack the technical expertise to be able to give that the necessary guidance so yeah those kind of organizations we we wouldn't work with but we would also we would always have conversations with them and we'd um we would signpost them to mm. to a different scheme perhaps there was one recently, there was a one-man band who, who wanted to bring an apprentice on, but he didn't have any office space. He didn't have employer's liability insurance at the time. He said he could get that. Um, but ultimately, you know, from, from having a 20-minute conversation with him, it turned out that actually an apprenticeship wouldn't really be the right fit for his organisation. So I spoke to him about the Kickstart scheme and gave him that the, the necessary advice and guidance around there, where you might not have the same hoops to jump through mm. uh, in order to... To, to be eligible for that and so it's again we, we would never just close the door on somebody we would also always give them the the right advice and guidance and we'd say to them look once you've got your own offices and you've got three or more people and you've got the technical competency in-house come back to us let's have a conversation again but it's guiding them on what they need to get to where they need to be in order to make that work for them right and how's that going to impact things going forward then because there are companies that are going right from now on it's work from home indefinite or they are reducing office space. They're getting rid of the officers. They're doing more remote. How does that work onboarding and training an apprentice when ideally they need to be in front of the person, especially if it's a small, you know, handful of people as a company, four or five people. Yeah. It makes it very difficult. We've, we found it particularly hard with software development. I think software development roles that we used to have have really dropped off. And I think, Software development companies have were maybe a little bit further forward than other organizations in terms of home working. We tend to find that software developers maybe are a little bit more introverted, but a lot of what they're doing and a lot of the projects that they're working on can be all done remotely. And then they are collaborating on a, on a piece of software. So we found that a lot of the software companies that we may have dealt with previously have, are now working from home and they don't plan to come back into an office environment. And it makes it very difficult because I think for an apprenticeship to be effective, being in that office environment, being around other people is, is really important. 
I think there's there's conversations that happen in the kitchen. There is conversations that happen across the office. There's the opportunity for somebody to come sit on your shoulder and watch what you're doing. And, uh, and, and that's part of their learning and part of their experience. And also when you, when you look at an apprenticeship, it's not just the knowledge elements. There's also the, the behavioral aspects of things as well. And actually, you, if you're an apprentice working in a business that is totally remote, I feel as though you miss out on a lot of those opportunities. Um, you don't get to have those little conversations in the kitchen. Um, and you don't get into that routine of making sure you arrive on time and, um, and, and bonding with your colleagues and understanding how different departments interrelate to each other. I think it's more difficult to understand the fundamentals of a business when you're, when you're trying to do it remotely. Especially when you're, when you're a small business as well. One of the best things that you can possibly do, and it kind of ties back to what you were saying earlier, is with, with you being still so intimately involved with everything, is if you can spend time as an apprentice or, or any member of staff, really, but especially as an apprentice, if you can spend time with the owner, the leadership team, whatever, if you can be there, you can listen in, you can learn, you can hear how they work. You know, that is probably one of the most beneficial pieces of, uh, of time you could possibly have, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to sit in the same room as the MD of the company for, for a day and hear how they operate and see how they operate versus working from home and, yeah, Slack is great and, and Teams is wonderful and Zoom's okay, but you don't get that learning. And I think being in the office environment provides such a huge amount of developmental time that you can spend with people. That's dead right. And, you know, and it kind of ties into our business model as well in terms of how we deliver our apprenticeship. So you know, we, we provide apprenticeships to, to mainly businesses in, in Derby and Nottingham. And the reason that we're almost a little bit restricted in that sense is because we deliver everything out of our training hub which is based in uh, Derby city centre. Mm. So we, we have to be providing the training to local organisations. Now, a big piece, you know, there's a lot of training providers now that are delivering everything online. And one of the things that we really feel is that if we were to switch to online learning, our apprentices would miss out on so much of the, uh, the softer skills that, yeah. you, that you would learn from being in and around other people. And we feel as though that, that classroom environment really, really helps that. It helps support things like peer-to-peer relationships, um, collaboration, you know, just doing joint presentations. Um, you know, like I say, Teams and Zoom is, is, is fine for delivery. But what you, can, what you often find is that people turn the cameras off. And I've seen in previous training providers where that's happened. Um, and you know, the communication has been all done through a chat box because people mm. aren't willing to connect their microphones or aren't, aren't willing to put their cameras on. And actually, when you're in a classroom environment, you don't have the choice to communicate through a chat box. You have to be, you have to be engaging and you, you have to be getting involved in discussions and you have to be doing presentations. And it pushes you, pushes some people that are maybe a little bit more introverted outside of their comfort zone and gives them that really relevant and, and valuable experience of, of dealing, with, dealing with people. Well, it's interesting when you're in a classroom environment, you can slump down in your chair and hide behind your book. Mm. Nine times out of 10, those are the exact people that the lecturer is going to pick on. Yes, absolutely. You know, yeah. and, and it's the same in sales. We, we've been saying that, this whole, you know, scenario where for us, the typical sales process involve, involves flying out to a different country, having a few glasses of wine, a, a steak and a few beers is how a lot of our deals close. 
now to be able to do that just over Zoom, um, you know, I think it's breeding a different type of salesperson ultimately because you've got those people who can't close in person but are great at closing remotely and then you've got those who can only do in person and don't know how to you know how do how do i close a deal over camera and over over a phone call there's some very different skill sets i think that are being brought about here um yeah yeah. i think so and one of the things that i've really that i've always enjoyed about sales and account management is being able to build relationships with employers and, and for them to almost become become friends and become part of your social network and I've over the years I've enjoyed going to you know doing corporate hospitality because at corporate hospitality that is the time that you you spend three hours together and really you don't you don't talk shop you don't talk about work no. you might you might have a bet on the football you'll have a couple of beers you'll have a bit of food you might even decide to to go for a couple of drinks afterwards and you know, I've I've certainly missed that over the past twelve months or so. Um, yeah, going go for little client lunches, things like that. And I think I think we we miss that. We certainly miss that. Um, and you just you can't necessarily build up those types of relationships over over um, yeah remote video conferencing tools. I, I saw a picture the other day on my phone as I was going through a few things, and it was you and I at the Jimmy Greaves. Uh, event you know we got our yes, side shirts and yeah. you know won those on the auctions and you, know, you cannot replicate something like that evening where like you say you're having a few beers and a chat and a laugh and a good evening and you know we went out for a few after that as well you can't replicate that over a zoom call and the reason we've been able to be um, as successful as we have been during this pandemic is because we put in a lot of effort and a lot of time to build our relationships up you know, over the years before this occurred. Mm. So now when you call John on the phone, you know, you do have those stories of, hey, you know, this time last year we did X, Y, and Z, you know, and we will do that again. And it's almost a barrier to entry for other people to get in on those relationships Mm. as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really good point. Um, I think one of the, one of the strategies that I've sort of taken to, to almost bridge that gap is to try and, try and get more of my personal self across on, on social media. So things, you know, platforms like LinkedIn, I think are really good, but probably before, before the pandemic, I think a lot of my content that used to go out on LinkedIn was probably more corporate. Didn't used to get, didn't used to get a lot of engagement. Um, And I've started trying to share more personal content, maybe some experiences, maybe just a silly photo, um, that kind of thing. And, and actually, I feel as though that really helps build relationships within your network as well. I think because we're obviously missing corporate hospitality and we're missing work lunches and things like that, I do think it's important to get your personality out there in, in some some form or another. Um, and that's that's been one of the ways that, that I've approached it. Well, it is because, you know, you'll meet up at these corporate hospitalities and the, and the first thing is, how's the wife, how's the kids? Yeah. Right. It'll be three beers now, please. And that's how you get started ultimately. And I know that, you know, when my son was, I mean, my son's four now, but when he was first born, I was adamant that there would be no pictures of him online anywhere. That was kind of my thing. And I think for the first year, there was not a single photo anywhere. Uh, And after that, I just sort of gave up. But I think today, um, I I live on LinkedIn. My most popular post to date is the one where my son sat in the boardroom. That's the yeah. one that's had, you know, enormous, enormous views, comments, likes, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. 
and ultimately was something that's triggered off a few leads and ended up converting business as well because people, you know, contacted or left a message and then that ultimately started a conversation which started a, a meeting which started and so on and you know not that you use your personal life to sell but i think with the pandemic we've had to become accustomed that people do have personal lives and you know if you were on a business call 12 18 months ago and somebody heard your kids screaming in the background it would be kind of can you go to a quiet room somewhere yeah yeah sure now i jump on a zoom call and my lad climbs on my lap and tries to show people his little Iron Man Lego figurines to the screen. <laughs> and it's kind of acceptable now. Yeah. You know, but I think there is going to be, there's going to be a rush to get back to some form of normality. Mm-hmm. But I think it's going to take longer than people think. Yes. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I would agree. Um, I think, I think certainly, certainly for us, you know, we've, my wife is, is now having to, to work from home permanently. So I think that's that's quite a, a big shift. I think childcare has been a, a, a big shift in homeschooling and, and learning. Um, but, you know, fingers crossed, times are changing. You know, we've got, we're counting down the days until the, the children are back at school full time, you know, next Monday, I think it is. Um, and I think, you know, that, that will provide a really big shift. But I think that the long-term effect of, of this situation is, uh, you know, it is going to go on for, for another six months or so. But I think, yeah, there's there's definitely definitely a call to get things back to normal. But but I guess the question is, what is normal? And I think normal will will really change. Um, but uh, yeah, I think certainly for me, normality is coming back into into the work environment, getting uh, getting back out to client lunches and and you know, enjoying some some social activities. I mean, do you get to have any downtime at the moment then? Because one of the things I did when this whole lockdown kicked off was I went straight online and bought a whole load of gym gear and built a built a home gym. Um, yeah. You know, I've got the turbo trainer and the weights and the bands and the and the ropes and and all these bits and pieces, right? To to build something, stuck a fifty five inch TV up on the wall in the in the man cave, and, and off we yeah, go. Yeah. You know, but as far as downtime and spare time, other than working out we can't go to restaurants we can't do anything else but you've got kids so you know how, how do you switch off then what do you do yes yeah, so, so so i go running um in in january me me and a few of my friends were, were all on a whatsapp group and we said we we're going to do 200k uh, running in in january i think i got to about 135 before the knees went um <laughs> so i was yeah i was really pushing it but yeah the the knees aren't what they used to be um so i struggled with that a little bit so um yeah maybe i'm going to try and embrace cycling a bit more it's a bit bit lower impact i think mm-hmm. exercise is really important for for me it's a it's a great opportunity to clear your mind and, and think straight and think about business and think about family and think about strategy um so i've always always enjoyed uh doing that what else do i do for downtime I get, we, yeah, we, we're still able to go out as a family. We can go to the local park. We can spend that time together. Obviously, there's, you know, I enjoy going to the pub as much as anybody and enjoy going to restaurants. So as soon as we had the news that restaurants were opening, I made sure that, uh, you know, I got a couple of reservations booked in. Same. Uh, yeah, it's just it just gives you something in the diary to look forward to, doesn't it? But um, I, I enjoy playing my guitar. So if I ever get the the opportunity. I'll, I'll have a play on the guitar. It's difficult with kids because you can't play your guitar after they've gone to bed because it's going to wake them up. And you can't play the guitar whilst they're awake 
because they want to come in and, and pluck the strings at the same time. So it, yeah. it makes it quite difficult. So I've got to pick my pick my opportunities quite wisely with uh, with when I when I play that. It is. It, it's interesting trying to um, balance it all out, especially when everyone's at home and there's nothing much you can do about it, right? I mean, in terms of you know, just going back to your career and you know, seven years you were at a previous business, you've gone through a couple others uh, to get to where you are now. Has there been any particular interesting experiences along the way where you've gone, wow, that's something I'm going to remember for, for the rest of my life, good or bad? I've experienced redundancy twice. I think that that will be an experience that I'll, I'll remember for, for the rest of my life. Um, the, when you are made redundant from a position, it, it does feel very, very daunting. And, you, you know, when you've got mortgage payments to consider, you, you, you don't know where the next paycheck is going to come from. I think I've always I've always had the self-belief to know that I've been able I'd be able to go find something that's going to be suitable. And I've always tried to look at things like redundancy as maybe a sign, maybe an opportunity to go find something that's better suited, maybe maybe an opportunity to, to take a step up. And I think actually one of the reasons that I've, I've progressed quite quickly in, in my career was because of redundancy. I think um, it, it actually helped my career. And yeah, when I was when I was with that large training provider where I spent four and a half years, you know, I progressed really well in that business. You know, started as a recruitment executive and ended as a head of sales, but I was really only in that head of sales role for, for three months before being made redundant. And uh, within a within a week of being made redundant, I'd been offered two positions as sales director, you know, one at a local college and, and, and one with a, another private training provider. So it was a great opportunity for me to move up very quickly, but I would, looking back at it, I almost wonder whether it was, you know, the, the step up was almost too quick because of my lack of experience in a, in a head of sales capacity than going up straight up to a sales director so soon after. Um, but I'm, I'm one of these people that learns best when thrown in at the deep end and, and i think there's no better no better opportunity to learn something than uh, than just doing it and making mistakes along the way and, and learning things so embracing the mistakes rather than dwelling on them ultimately absolutely yeah that that's something that particularly young people struggle with is they will dwell on those mistakes and and overthink them and almost get stuck in their career because of what happened once upon a time somewhere else for them. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. But I had another fantastic experience that I'd probably, um, that's probably worthwhile referencing. And again, whilst I was working for that really large training provider, um, they set up uh, an American business. So it was almost trying to launch apprenticeships in America. And I was, I was essentially an account manager at the time. And, and I was asked by the chief executive to, to go over to America and essentially assess the success of their American business. And at the time, I was thinking, well, surely you'd send a, one of your directors to, to do this kind of position. But, but it actually shown the faith that that chief exec had got in me. Um, and that was an amazing experience. You know, I was, I was chauffeur driven down to uh, Gatwick Airport, I think, and I was on the, on the plane to Baltimore on my own um, and I'd, I'd got a brief and I had a report to write by the end of it and I, I got into the American apprenticeship business and they'd they'd all got me bagels in and stuff like that because they knew I was going to be reviewing their business and yeah amazing experience 
amazing experience. And I was there for maybe three, four nights, and I got the opportunity to go to Washington D.C. at the end of the at the end of the experience and and see all of the memorials and the monu- monuments and um, all the all the sites. So yeah, incredible experience. So I'm just leading off that then. Um... Official or unofficial mentors, family members, friends, you know, has there been anyone in particular that you could say over the period of your career, you know, they've really influenced, you know, what I've done and where I've gone? I mean, you talked about your dad being in the position he was in in Rolls-Royce and that kind of led you down that path at university. But anyone else you really looked up to, I suppose, growing up? So in in terms of inspirational people in my life, uh, my mum and dad were certainly two of those people. Um, They... Uh, they probably stretched their own budget to move from a less affluent part of the city um, to, um, to to a nicer suburb, which allowed myself and my sister to, to have access to, to better schools um, and, and ultimately get a better level of education. Um, so I'll always be thankful and, and very grateful for, for what they did there. They've always um, made sure that my values and my morals uh, are in line. So I think certainly for, for me, they, they've been a, a really big impact. From a business perspective, I've, I've had the opportunity to, to work with some of the most successful entrepreneurs in, in, the, in the region. Um, when I worked for IMS Lettings and then later on at Safe and Secure Insurance, I, I worked under the managing director, who's a guy called Chris Griffin. He often spoke to me about the fact that he felt as though I had more potential than I was showing and he spent time in sort of coaching me and training me and he used to get me to to read books I always remember one called who moved my cheese uh, that was uh, you know, and, and he would ask me to kind of come back and, and talk to him about you know my my feelings about that particular book and, and what I've taken out of that um, after I'd worked at safe and secure I went on to an organization called three A's and I worked uh, quite closely with the chief exec of, of that business as well, and and a lot of the other directors. Um, and it was a guy called Pete Marples, and he was a fantastic entrepreneur, had great vision for for business growth, and um, you know, and then he came from an apprenticeship background himself. And and ultimately, it was it was him and other directors, you know, sales director Paul Brunskill, that opened up a whole world of opportunities for me. And part of my progression from going from a a sales executive or recruitment executive as, a, as an entry-level post, you know, I progressed all the way to head of sales in, in, in that organization. And the opportunities that they gave me along the way um, were fantastic. Yeah. We've spoken about the opportunity that I got to, to go over to America um, and do a bit of an assessment on the, on the American apprenticeship business that, we, that we'd set up over there. Phenomenal experience that I just wouldn't have had if I'd, you know, if, if I'd have not had that relationship. Moving on from there, worked with a fantastic guy over at Baltic Training uh, called Tony Hobbs, and he was the managing director of that organization. Other, again, other great directors there that I learned a lot from as well, but Tony particularly stands out. And a lot of what he taught me there is what I've brought over into, you know, into, into this role at EMA. Baltic were a very good business for, for staff culture, for retention and staff engagement. And I think that's certainly something that's really high on, high on my agenda uh, to make sure that we get right here. And finally, um, one of the most impressive people that, that I've had the privilege to work with, Tracy, and Tracy's our chief exec here. Um, the way that she 
puts the needs of her team ahead of her own. And she will get up at five o'clock in the morning to, to deal with her own emails. And she'll work until later at night to, you know, to, to deal with her own tasks. Her daytime on a Monday to Friday is all about supporting the team around her and creating that environment of um, you know, be, just, just supporting everybody, getting involved in everything from uh, curriculum design to development to um, the operations to sales to account management. You know, she gets involved in all elements of the business, supporting our apprentices. She's got a hell of a lot of people that line into her that require her help and guidance and support and and, and she gives that and she's she's been a she's been a great role model for me and, and somebody that I've learned a lot from. I think one thing that's clear there is that the various people that you've worked under that you've looked up to have all seen the same quality in you, which is you've got a tremendous amount in you um, in terms of your progression, your career, and ultimately, you know, who who you are as a person in, in those roles. And they've all given you a significant amount of trust and clearly it's been paying off. I think so. And, and, and I don't, my self-esteem hasn't, hasn't always been particularly high. You know, when, when I dropped out of university, I think that did have a, I think that probably did have a bit of an effect on, on my, on my own personal self-esteem and, you know, being made redundant a couple of times that can have an effect on your self-esteem and, and your value as well. But it certainly helps when, when you're being told that you've got potential there. And when, when you're given these opportunities and I, I found it quite humbling. And I think it kind of comes back to the point that we made about um, you know, when I was offered the role as a COO, when I rejected the, the job title, I said I didn't want that job title. And again, I think that comes down to, a, to maybe, a, maybe a slight lack of self-esteem in, in that respect and maybe imposter syndrome kicking in there as well and, and saying, you know, I don't currently have the level of, level of experience in that. And maybe I don't have the self-belief. But I think sometimes you need to take a step back and you say, right, maybe I'm just being overcritical of myself. Maybe you need to listen to others more who are able to to give more of a critical opinion of, of you as a character and your potential as a, as a business person. And actually, like I say, I was incredibly humbled to be offered those positions. And it has that has to give you confidence that, that other people see something in you. It does. And I think a lot of the time you're right with the imposter syndrome, especially if you don't feel yourself that you have the skill set yet. However, the the entrepreneur or the CEO or the, the person that is leading the company typically has that vision. And, and certainly one of the key points that a chief exec needs to hold is the ability to hire, retain and train great people. And if they see something for you or they see you are capable of something, there's probably a good reason for them, you know, to see that in you. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. And I think some, sometimes I do have to take a step back and, and look at what we've achieved over over what's been a very difficult year for mm-hmm. with the pandemic. And, and actually, if I'm ever doubting myself, I do take that step back and we say, right, well, this is what we've achieved. This is, you know, we've increased our numbers from 65 learners to, to 115. And we've increased our our staff can we've been able to bring on some of the best people in the region and and actually you have to take that step back and say do you know what you you are you're doing a good job and maybe you just have to have to give yourself a bit more credit and then coming over to EMA as well you know Tracy is is a is an inspirational leader um 
she has been able to give me some fantastic support and she's really sort of nurtured me into this role as well. I think when, when I was originally approached about this position and, and approached about this COO role, the first thing I said is, I want the job, but I don't want the title. <laughs> I, don't want that, <laughs> I don't want that pressure to go with it. And, and, and you know, she, she sort of coached me into saying, look, I think it's a really good idea for you to, to take that title and to grow into it um and you know and, and having that opportunity for for progression and, and it was a and it was a really good piece of advice for me it's interesting because a lot of people are motivated by things like title right yeah or by salary what is it that what is it that motivates you and i suppose where your definition of success ultimately comes into that as well yeah I've, you've, you've probably seen this yourself but there's a there's an image flying around on social media at the minute on linkedin that a lot of people are, are posting out and it's a, it's a diagram of how we're taught to measure success. And it's almost like a pie chart split into two. And it says salary and job title. Mm. And then below that, it says how we should measure success. And it has things like a section for physical health, mental health. And then salary and job title are, are smaller pieces of that pie. Correct. Um, but I think that that's really important. And I think to me, a definition of success, I... For me, it's, it's impact on my local community. One of the things I've been really passionate about is supporting local people in, in the East Midlands, getting young people into their, into their job roles. And if I can, t- you know, last year we placed 100 people aged 16 to 24 into their first, into brand new apprenticeship roles across you know, IT, marketing, accountancy. Um, and to me, that is, that's my definition of success. But looking on a broader perspective, they're making sure that I've got time for my wife and my kids and being able to, to watch them grow up and be able to influence their lives and give them, give them opportunities. Of course, things like salary and job title are, um, they're, they're great and they, they can be very motivational and I'm very proud of, uh, you know, of, of the, the fact that I've been able to, to get a role as a director of a, of a business. Um, but it's not the be all and end all. You know, that, that, that second diagram is really important, making sure you, you're physically, physically healthy, making sure that your mental well-being is, is, is good and, and then everything else that comes with it. I think that's really interesting. And it's something that needs to be discussed at length, I think, with, with people, particularly the age of apprenticeships, right? Social media now is glamorizing that everybody can be a, a hashtag entrepreneur and how at 21 years old, you should have a Ferrari and a mansion and a bed full of money because that is what social media tells us is, is true. Mm. Um, and I've certainly experienced it in people that we've hired or people that we've interviewed especially where that's their level of expectation. And I'll always recall one interview I had where somebody for their very first job out of university, was it 20 years old or whatever it might be, said, hey, I'm, I'm willing to start on 30K. <laughs> I, I get it. Like there are aspirations and there are things that you believe to be true, but I think that ultimately there needs to be an understanding that time and patience is so, so necessary in any of these kind of endeavors. And I think if you think that at 24 years old, you're going to have the Ferrari in the mansion, it's kind of disrespectful to those that have put in the 20, 30, 40, 50 years to get anywhere near that. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, it's it's all a part of it. It's, it's a part of the journey, really, isn't it? And mm. and I guess for me, yeah, having having those material things is not. It, it just isn't a, a definition of, of success. 
outright. And I think it's interesting the point that you make about you know, people coming in with that sort of entitlement of I'm willing to, to work for you for, for the, starting at 30 grand a year. I mean, it's great that somebody knows and, un- and understands their worth. I think that's really important for somebody to understand their worth. But there's a broader picture there as well, isn't there? And actually mm. what you think you're worth to an organisation might not necessarily be what other people think you're worth. And I think it's about being humble enough to, um, to, to acknowledge that and accept it. Well, you said about the uh, the job title that you got and that you, you almost didn't want the pressure that came with that job title. Mm. What is the most challenging part of your job role then? Because COO, I mean, that that implies an awful lot of pressure. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many new things that I've been learning. You know, I've been... I've been involved with um, curriculum development, so kind of creating new programs for, for launch. Um, one, one of the most difficult things is kind of get, I mean, getting your head around curriculum development when you've never got involved in that side of things can be quite challenging. But one of the things that I'm really focused on is bringing the right people into this business. And, you know, so our, our internal talent acquisition strategy, I suppose, is, is, is really vital making sure that you can attract the best people and also making sure that you retain the people as well. So I guess talent attraction is a, is a really um, challenging part of the role. And I think you alluded to it earlier, being able to maintain quality as we scale up. I think that's really important. We've currently got you know, some of our learners at the minute, they will text their coaches and mentors and tutors in, in an evening at weekends and you know, that they will reply to that. And actually, that is scalable because all of our tutors and coaches and mentors, they have a caseload of learners and it will never go above what their caseload requirement is or what their caseload allowance is almost. Um, so from that side of things, it's scalable. But I think, yeah, maintaining the, maintaining the quality of this business as we scale is, is going to be a big challenge and maintaining you know, and recruiting the right people. And I think they're probably the most challenging parts of, of this job role. So considering the turbulent year that we're in and, you know, we're recording this at the beginning of March, mm. are there any personal or business goals that you're you're vying to hit this year, despite whichever way the pandemic may continue or, or slow down? Yeah, I think um, business-wise, we'd, we'd like to launch a hub in Nottingham um, this year. So that's, that's certainly something that's on our agenda. Um, one of the, the aims and objectives that... that we have as a, as a sales team in the minute. So it's not really about new starts that you bring into the business. It's about the occupancy, the, the number of apprentices that you've got on the books. I think at the end of this year, I think we'd like to be on about 200 learners. We're on about 150, 120. At the minute, I think by the end of this year, we'd like to be on about 200. Obviously, when apprentices come to the end of their program, they drop off your occupancy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just a case of placing 80 new learners. It might be a case of placing 120, 140. Um, but yeah, I guess at the end of this year, we'd like to be on 200. We'd like to have the Nottingham Centre all set up. Probably like to be on about 30 employees. So I think from a business perspective, that's where we'd like to be at. We want to grow as a business, but we want sustainable mm-hmm. growth. Um, we, we've had opportunities to, um, take on large cohorts of learners, which sit outside of our sort of technical niche. And we've, we've rejected those, those Mm -hmm. types of opportunities because it's not where we position ourselves. We know that we can grow as a business, but we want to do it sustainably. We want to maintain quality and 
and getting an Ofsted outstanding is certainly one of the uh, one of the one of the goals and aspirations for this year. So, one of the really interesting things that we found from a lot of people that I've been speaking to is um, people that have started out as interns or apprentices or entry level engineers, for example. And over a period of time, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it might be, have ended up becoming the CEO of the company that they started at. Mm. You know, that's a conversation I have with a lot of people uh, who join us here is that my role is very much up for grabs, uh, as is anyone else in the business that you want to go and take. Everything is just reflected in the work and in the, in the results, right? Mm-hmm. So when you've got so many youngsters coming through your doors so frequently, you know, how do you how do you demonstrate to them other than your own stories of what you've been able to achieve? How would you show somebody that actually just because you're going in at a seven thousand pound a year apprenticeship salary doesn't mean that your goals that you want perhaps you know you, you can achieve those? It's just going to take a little bit of time. Yeah. So we we always talk to the talk to the learners about when they're coming in. Um, an apprenticeship obviously isn't just about the salary that you're going to take. Um, 20% of the time when you're on an apprenticeship, you're doing new learning and you're not actively adding value to the business that you're working for. You're not doing your day-to-day roles and responsibilities. So to start off with, the employer is only going to be getting you for 80% of the time. Secondly, for the first three months or so, they're not really going to be getting any value out of you. Actually, their productivity is probably going to dip because they are going to be spending time coaching you and nurturing you and showing you the ropes and showing you software and all those kind of things. So it kind of takes away from their time. So in terms of a productivity dip, you know, they probably have a dip to start off with and then they start to see some sort of return on their investment after maybe three to six months. So it's about explaining this to them and explaining why the salary would reflect that. Um, but also we always talk to the learners about their progression pathway and say, you know, as a, as a level three apprentice, you might be in, in this, but if you then progress onto level four and you start specializing, you know, for it, for example, if you want to specialize in networks or cyber or data analytics, um, this is what salary you could be on. And then in five years time, the typical salary for a network engineer or for a data analyst or for a, um, a software developer, this is the kind of salary that you can expect. So it's about, mapping out that career pathway for an apprentice and and kind of showing them where they could be and what they could be earning. I think we also, we've got great experiences um, or great examples of people already within our organization that started off as apprentices. And, you know, I know Tracy, our chief exec herself, she started off as a a finance apprentice at, I think, Myriad Products. Um, And, you know, she worked her way up to, finance director and then ended up owning her own business and, and then became a became a chief exec obviously I didn't go through the apprentice route but like anybody else I started from the bottom and and worked work my way up and it just it shows and we can we can share these experiences with our learners and, and show them that you don't have to have gone to university and, and got a degree to be able to to be able to operate at this kind of level to be able to be running a business um, you know there's, there's there's other routes into that in terms of, uh, we, we've got lots of success stories that we like to that we like to share with our apprentices, and you know these are apprentices that maybe you know, because when I was starting to place apprentices seven years ago, a lot of these young people now are coming through and and I'm working with them. You know, so this week I've been talking to a finance manager at you know at a at a large organisation in Swaddling Coat. I remember the day he was placed in his in his apprenticeship and uh, you know on 
on uh, on Ashbourne Road in Ashbourne Road in Derby, and he was a yeah nervous accountancy apprentice, and now he's head of finance that organisation. Got another guy. I've just placed an apprentice with him. I placed him as a, a level three IT apprentice. He's now the IT manager of a, a large multinational um, organisation that are based down in down near Ashby, I think. And I've just placed an apprentice with him. So, and then we'll we'll do case studies about these types of people to say, look, this is where you could be. This is where an apprenticeship could lead you to. So, yeah, I think sharing sharing personal stories, sharing apprentice success stories, and also just sharing that progression pathway to the learners really kind of um, helps paint that picture for them. Some proud moments there, seeing Definitely. how far some of these guys have come over the last few years, eh? 100%, yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. You talked about just then and before as well about sharing more personal, the more personal side of you, particularly on things like LinkedIn and, you know, using that as a way to to get yourself back out there a little bit. You know, what is, is there anything about you that nobody knows that you'd be willing to share something that people would go, actually, I didn't know that about James, you know, is there anything uh, that we might be surprised to know? Um, well, I, I represented my county for chess when I was, uh, when I was young. Uh, okay. I can't remember what year I would have been in at the time. You know, it was certainly a junior, a junior tournament, maybe when I was about nine or ten. So I'm, I was a chess buff, but we're, we're never playing chess now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've not, uh, I've not played chess for probably about twenty years or so. So, yeah, long, long time, long time ago. Um, what else might people not know about me? I've already mentioned that I, I play the acoustic guitar. I've been playing that since I was about ten years old. Um, are you any good yet sorry are you any good yet then yeah I'm good I'm good yeah yeah I can play and I can sing so yeah it's all good um I've got two daughters um people might know that already but yeah one's one's two one's five um so I'm, I'm pretty pretty overran in my house I'm, I'm hoping to get a uh, a boy dog to sort of balance things out a little bit maybe at some point in the next 12 months or so so that'd That'd be good. I'll give you one last one to go with then. Yeah. Any favourite quotes that you live by? Anything? Any mantras that you have that you repeat? I mean, we've got a handful here, but you know, either personal or or in or in the business. We we have a we have a bit of a family motto, and our family motto is "Be kind to people." And I think that that's something that I've taken into business as well. And I think it kind of ties in with one of our values, which is respect mm-hmm. and. You know, whether whether you're an apprentice in the business, whether you're a senior executive in the business, whether you're a director, chairman, whatever, every single person within this organization will be treated with the same amount of respect. And I think that kind of ties into to kindness as well. And it's about thinking about other people. You don't know, you don't necessarily know what's going on in, in other people's minds. Um, so you know, being being able to think before you speak and, and always going out your way to be kind. Um, try and try and do my try and do my bit for charity if i see a homeless person i i I quite often go and have a conversation with them and you know find find out if they if they want a drink or if they want some food um you know so i try and i do try and live my life by that mantra i i'm the kind of person if if i if i went to a party and there was a group of people chatting looking like they're having a great time and there was one person sat in the corner looking a bit awkward and sat with nobody I'd be the one that would go to that person as opposed to going in and having the fun in the group I would want to go to to the person who's 
who doesn't seem so happy. And I think, yeah, that, that's certainly a, a mantra that I try and I try and live my life by. Always supporting those in need, eh? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You've been listening to the TPM podcast from Velez Managed Services, bringing you podcasts weekly. So tune in next time to see who we bring to the table.